Well, good morning. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 10. This message was supposed to be part of our One Another series that we had last summer, but uh, we had to postpone this one because of some health adventures that I was having. Some of you know about that. I'm just very blessed to be upright and uh, able to bring the message today. I don't take that for granted after uh, some of the things that have happened in uh, previous months. So here's our text. It's a short text, two verses, one long sentence, and it goes like this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Over the last weeks and months, I've been plotting and scheming to provoke you today. That's why the sermon is called Plotting to Provoke One Another. I've been considering how I might stir you up to stir others up. This is actually just another way of stating what's in our church's mission statement. If you don't have that memorized or haven't looked at it recently, here's what it says. GBC exists to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. Being disciples who makes disciples, make disciples points to the principle of multiplication, not just addition. We do not exist simply to add people here and there who will receive the gospel and be more loving and do good works, as good as that might be. We exist to deepen believers in their relationship to Jesus, to develop them uh, in Jesus-type or Jesus-like character and skills, and then to deploy them to reproduce more of the same kind of believers. If we place make disciples alongside stir one another up for love and good works, we can see that both speak of the same process. And seeing this helps us understand both of these commands better. As we disciple others, we stir them up to love and good works. And one of the most important ways we can stir up others to love and good works is to make disciples. As we examine the scripture today, I want to reassure you that I'm not calling you to something completely new or unfamiliar. I could point to numerous examples in our church family uh, where this is going on. You know, I just think of a dozen people who gathered up here uh, before the service today who are all serving in various ways to make it possible for all of the rest of us to come here and to give our undivided attention to what's going on. So that is happening here, and I hope that what's shared today can help us think more deeply about this subject and then become even more wise and purposeful in how we stir one another up. I want to imitate what the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonian church. Here's uh, his attitude in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. He said, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Later in chapter 4, same book, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And finally, as if that's not enough repetition in the next chapter, he says basically the same thing. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. By the way, although we didn't plan this, 
it's timely for this message to come today because this is a day of a membership meeting. As members, we formalize our commitment to one another to do what this scripture tells us to do, to encourage one another in our life as disciples of Jesus. If you're a Christian but not yet a member of GBC, take this as an encouragement to consider membership. If you're not yet a Christian, I hope this message will prompt you to seriously consider Jesus' invitation to trust and follow him and to become part of this local branch of his family. Since our text today is only two verses, I want to share a little bonus content with you up front. If you're an internet browser, you probably come across the term, the phrase bonus content when uh, someone is trying to sell you something or try to convince you that you got a good deal. There's a lot of bonus content. Well, what we usually call that in, uh, in church's background or context, uh, but I, I want to share three things that will hopefully help us to understand this text more thoroughly. So let's stay, uh, set the stage with three items of background here. The first is the image of God in us, how we look at each other, because after all, this verse starts with saying, let us uh, encourage one another. Let us consider one another. So who is the us? Who's the one another? Second piece of background is balanced the balanced Christian life. How does this passage fit into the overall kind of picture of what a Christian life looks like. And third, then we want to look how this uh, look at how this verse um, fits into the book of Hebrews. It kind of fits right kind of in the middle of the book of Hebrews, so we'll take a look at that. So the first piece of background concerns the fact that we are considered or we are created in God's image. Genesis 1:27 says, "So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them." Traditionally, one way of explaining how we bear God's image is to say that just like God, we have mind, emotion, and will. We think, we feel, and we choose. We have knowledge about God, we have desires toward God, and obedience to God. Of course, God's mind and emotions and will are way, way higher than ours, but on the other hand, our minds, emotions, and will are on a whole different level from any other creatures on the planet. In our text today, we'll see how four key expressions in, in these verses point to, um, or, or they, how they parallel these aspects of God's nature, God's image. The word consider points to our minds, our thinking. Stir up and encourage point to our emotions, our desires, and then love and good works points to our will, our obedient actions. With this in mind, here's a suggested way for us to listen to this message today, or for that matter, on any Sunday. As a thinking person, ask, what am I seeing here that I haven't seen before? As a feeling person, ask yourself, what am I feeling here that I haven't felt before? And along with that, you might pray, God, deepen my feelings about who you are. As a choosing person, ask, what action am I being called to take today? And along with that, you might pray, God, help me take actions of obedience. I didn't want to talk about that without trying it out. So last week when Mike preached on Psalm 27, I had these three questions in mind. And so I listened to the sermon with those questions in mind. And here's what I came up with. For thinking, I was struck with this truth. Moralists see God as useful. Christians see God as beautiful. I chewed on that one quite a bit. 
For feeling, I wrote this. My feeling about beauty in music or art or nature is an echo of my feeling about the beauty of Jesus. For choosing, I resolved that I will take a few moments each day to gaze at the beauty of God. The preaching of the Word, I think, will be most beneficial if we come to the message with open hearts and perhaps using these three questions to uh, help us to, to focus in on what's being shared. So we'll revisit these questions as we move along today. The second piece of background concerns how these verses fit into an overall picture of the Christian life. For years, I've relied on a helpful illustration uh, called the wheel. It was devised by a guy named Dawson Trotman. Uh, I grew up hearing stories from my dad about Dawson Trotman. He founded a, a ministry called The Navigators way back in 1933. And this uh, picture that we call the wheel pictures the normal, balanced life of a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. So if you look at that, you see the hub of the wheel is Jesus himself. Uh, and we might say that uh, we might support that with a verse like Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The second, or the rim of the wheel, where the rubber meets the road, you might say, is obedience to Christ. Jesus said in John 14.21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he or she it is who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What are the spokes of the wheel that transmit the energy from the hub to the rim? Well, we have two vertical spokes, and we have four horizontal spokes. The vertical spokes are God's word and prayer. These have to do primarily with our relationship to God. And then the horizontal spokes are fellowship and witnessing. These have to do primarily with our relationships with other people, both believers and non-believers. So these spokes are the, the, the elements that transmit the energy of the hub of our daily conduct and character. Well, what happens to a wheel that is weak? or broken, or missing spokes. It's not going to serve its purpose very well. Because any pressure will reveal lack of stability and integrity in the wheel. It will not hold up well on bumpy roads or under heavy loads. Today's scripture deals with the fellowship spoke of the wheel, our relationships with other Christians. Now, third element of background, how does this fit in the book of Hebrews? The big idea of these verses today is that we are to consider one another carefully in order to effectively stimulate each other toward more love and good works. Let's zoom out for a minute and see how these verses fit into the overall flow of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 through 10, 18, a big chunk of 10 plus chapters, deal with the what the subject matter of the book of Hebrews, and we could summarize that with this short uh, couple of sentences. Jesus is greater than anything the Old Testament has to offer. He is greater than angels, greater than Moses and Joshua, and greater than Aaron and the whole Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system. That's a summary of 1.1 through 10.18. That brings us to chapter 10, verse 19, which is the hinge, really, of the whole book, 19 through 21. It begins with the word therefore, indicating that everything up to this point leads us to 
what we're to do from this point on. So it says in 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then it goes on into verse 22, which from 22 on to the end of the book of Hebrews is the so what and the now what. We got the what in the first 10 plus chapters. Now we get the so what and the now what. Building on the truth that's been laid out. So we come now into verses 20 through to 25, and there are three admonitions here. On the basis of Jesus' once for all sacrifice, let's draw near with a true heart. Verse 22, that points to intimacy with God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 23, that points to perseverance in our faith. And then we come to our verses for today, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another. That points to encouragement. Now, if you're a visually oriented person, here's how we might map out these two verses. And by the way, I forgot to say earlier, some of you are note takers. Some of you are picture snappers. So if you want to take a picture of any of these slides, feel free. I won't be bothered. That uh, can be helpful for later reference. So if you're a visually oriented person, think of, we can lay the verses out this way. Uh, there's a picture of lettuce there that's just a little memory cue to remind us that it starts with let us. And in some uh, English versions, actually, there are three lettuces in this. There's let us uh, consider one another, let us not neglect meeting together, and let us encourage one another. So lettuce is your cue. Let us consider one another. This is the controlling phrase in the one long sentence we're studying. Considering one another should lead to three things. Stirring up one another, gathering together, or as it says, not neglecting to meet together. So we put that in a positive sense of gathering. And then encouraging one another. Our stirring up one another is meant to result in love and good works. There's a warning that comes with the urging to gather. Some are neglecting to meet together. And encouraging one another, the third element there, comes with an emphasis, an exclamation point. Do it all the more, because time is short. The day of Jesus' return is drawing near. Now, let's look again at our text. Starts out with let us. We usually say let's, don't we? We don't very often use the more formal let us go to the store. We usually say things like let's go to the park or let's get together sometime soon. Well, that's uh, not the way Hebrews uses let us. When, Hebrews, when it says let us in Hebrews, it's not a suggestion. It is an imperative, an expression of God's will for us. It doesn't have less force than thus says the Lord, or maybe I command you today. We already talked about being created in the image of God. Remember Genesis 1.27. That is, we are thinking, feeling, choosing beings. And just like God is a thinking, feeling, choosing being. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. We saw that in the opening reading called a worship, Psalm 8. We're the pinnacle of God's creation, the apple of his eye, crowned with glory and honor, commissioned to rule over God's material creation. No matter how old or young, how broken or disfigured, scarred or disabled, each human being is a unique masterpiece of God's creativity, commissioned or, or designed to reflect God's glory in a way that no other human being can. Think about that. 
Here's how my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, talked about the glory of God's design in human beings. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption as such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare, or maybe in a Hollywood horror movie. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. If you belong to Jesus, you're in the everlasting splendor category, even if you're still very much in process. Shouldn't that awareness raise your own self-esteem and also your esteem for your brothers and sisters? This is part of the reason why we should consider one another, take each other under consideration. So the us and the one another in these verses refer to us as human beings, but they're also talking about particular human beings who have joined the family of Jesus by trusting and following him. So as we say often in our communion observance after each Sunday service, if you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here because you're being offered the opportunity to become part of the family, part of the us and the one another who are being talked about here in our scripture today. Do you ever look at other people that way? Do you slow down long enough to ponder the fact that underneath all the brokenness and the imperfection, is this person of incalculable value. That's how God sees us. When we consider another person in this light, we begin to see unique qualities, capacities, and strengths that are waiting to be developed through encouragement, exposure to truth, and obedience. Let's talk about that word consider. Remember, that's the controlling word, and this is one long sentence here. So consider is the word that controls everything. Everything else, stirring up, gathering together, and encouraging one another flows out of considering one another, as we saw in the diagram earlier. The original word that's translated consider here means to pay attention, notice, observe, consider, contemplate. This word has a strong implication that the attention paid is intense. And the contemplation is broad and thorough, resulting in complete understanding. So that means that we should pay careful attention, for example, to each person's gifts, needs, challenges, opportunities, strengths, weaknesses, maturity level, and relationships. By the way, this principle also applies to how we should pray for one another. We shouldn't always just fall back on, place, on phrases like help him or be with her. Those prayers might be good at times, but sometimes they might just be lazy prayers too. When we're considering other believers, we should press in more specifically with our prayers, just as we do with our actions. 
The purpose is not simply to say or do nice things to other people, not just random acts of kindness, as you may have seen on a bumper sticker before. And it's not just urging others to be more kind, more generous, and so on. That's fine, but it's not what the biblical author has in mind here. Remember, we're keeping in mind the mission of reproducing disciples of Jesus. So that goes into our considering others. The author is talking about careful, strategic acts calculated to stimulate open-hearted love toward God and people and good works, activities that contribute to God's purposes in the world. That takes some real thought. So we're working toward promoting a particular kind of love and good works in light of our status, the image of God, in light of our mission, which is, again, to make disciples, and in light of our destiny, everlasting splendor, as we saw in the Lewis quote. Thinking this way will both constrain our thinking and enlarge our thinking. What do I mean by that? It will constrain or limit us because we won't just be doing random acts of kindness. We will refrain from doing some good things for the sake of doing better good things. But it will also enlarge our vision, stimulating us to be more imaginative and expansive, stimulating us or, or because we've, we're considering long-range effects, the purposes, the bigger picture of God's purposes. Let me share a few examples of how I do this. I uh, routinely keep a lookout for other men to have conversations with them, have coffee. And when I go out for a conversation with a Christian brother, I'm plotting, I'm scheming, I'm thinking, how does God want to use us to draw each other closer to Jesus as an apprentice or disciple? Now that might mean a partnership of two brothers, maybe the same maturity level, maybe a little bit different maturity level, but considering how we could stir one another up through love and good works through that kind of relationship. From time to time, I train small groups of men and women uh, to grow in Christ-like qualities like passion, uh, skill, vision, um, passion, knowledge, skill, character, and vision. Mosaics PDX is a network that I founded about five years ago, and I did that for the purpose of stimulating believers in the Portland area to love and serve across lines of ethnicity, culture, and denomination in order to show the world the unity that Jesus brings. Those are some ways that I plug in. I know there are a lot of you here who make me look like a slacker. I'm getting old. I don't have the energy I used to, but uh, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of servants in this congregation. We could be here all day sharing stories from our church family of how various ones are stimulating others toward love and good works. Uh, they might be uh, teaching kids classes or setting up and tearing down on a Sunday, leading worship, helping foster and adopted children and their families, uh, leading a Bible study or a small group, praying spontaneously with someone you're talking to, connecting with other churches through ministries like Immigrant Connection and Serve East County. Here are some questions you might consider when you're uh, thinking about how to stir others up. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What battles are they fighting? What needs do they have? What opportunities do they have? What is their role or position in their family, neighborhood, job, and other networks? How am I 
uniquely positioned to encourage them. What is unique about the kind of love and good works that God wants us to be engaged in? To answer that, we need to remind ourselves of our mission and calling. According to the Bible, we believe there's a root problem underlying all of humanity's ills, such as poverty and violence and disease. The root problem, we believe, is sin, a broken relationship with God stemming from our rebellious refusal to accept his authority and direction. If the fundamental problem is this estrangement from God, then the thing we most need, even more than food, shelter, health, and peace, is reconciliation with God, union with him. If people's deepest need is to be reconciled to God and have a transformed life, that gives us solid direction for our own love and good works, as well as how we seek to stir others up likewise. In other words, it helps us be wise in how we invest our love and our good works. I want to make a qualification here. This doesn't rule out spontaneous acts of affection or kindness or generosity. The more we're like Jesus, the more we will have Jesus-type instincts. So we'll naturally respond to people out of a heart of compassion and kindness. When confronted with an immediate need, an unexpected need, we'll feel compassion and respond with an appropriate good work. So when we consider others, we can think about what God wants for this person. What does he want? He wants this person to trust and follow Jesus and encourage others in the same direction. He wants to see lost people saved. He wants to see saved people transformed and then to be like Jesus and join in his mission. Let's get practical, uh, practical about some ways to stir up others. Remember, our text tells us to consider one another specifically in three ways. Stirring up one another, not neglecting to meet together, and encouraging one another. So, here are a few suggestions. If you're a parent, you can try to motivate your kids or grandkids to be kind and good. Cooperative students, that's a certain kind of love and good works, but it's not distinctively Christian. There are a lot of parents out there who are trying to do that with their kids. Along with that, not instead of that, but along with that, you could look for opportunities to talk with your kids about how God loves us and how we can show that kind of love for others. You can teach them about the extreme value and the tragic brokenness of human beings and how doing good to them can point them toward God and salvation. If you're married, do you merely do helpful things in the home and compliment your spouse when he or she does a good thing? Or do you consider how you might stimulate your spouse to a deeper love of God and a more purposeful serving of others? If you're unmarried, do you only enjoy good times with your Christian friends, showing general appreciation and support? Or do you study that friend, envisioning how you might encourage them toward a deeper commitment to God and actively reaching out to others in witness and service? If you're a teenager, any teenagers here? I know there are. One way you might encourage your parents is by telling them once in a while how much you appreciate all they do for you. If your parents have heart problems like I do, you might want to take it a little bit easy with that. You might shock them. Or with your Christian friends, teens, you could consider what you might say to them that would encourage them in their faith. Money can be a really useful tool for stirring up others to love and good works. You might buy a really good book for a friend. 
Or you might pay their way to a conference. Or you might support a little-known underfunded ministry, either locally or abroad. Or something that's free to do. Send a text to someone with a verse and tell them you're praying that verse for them. Now, let's stop and consider our three questions. Recall those for receiving a sermon. How are we doing with that? Have you seen something new yet? Have you felt something new yet? Have you been moved to take a particular action of obedience? If so, that's wonderful. If not, hang on, we've got a little further to go. What have we seen so far? That we should look at our fellow believers as the unique, wonderful creation creatures that God made them to be, and then to make it our aim to purposefully stir them up to godly love and service to others. Plotting to bless others in this way can become a joyful, prayerful, creative project. And it's also contagious, by the way. Can you imagine a community of people dedicated to stimulating one another toward maturity and fruitfulness in Jesus? Is it already happening among us? Yes, praise God, it is. Is there much room to grow in being more deliberate about encouraging one another? Of course. Meeting together doesn't mean just meeting on Sunday morning. It's broad enough to include small groups, Bible studies, coffee conversations. But in all of these types of meetings, the principle of considering and encouraging one another applies. We are constantly influenced by uh, factors that shape us or form us. Those factors can be external, like books, video, audio, uh, articles, news, conversations, and so on. They can be internal, like what we choose to think about, what we ponder, what we tell ourselves, what we pray about, and so on. These shaping forces can either deform us or transform us. In Romans 12, verse 2, we see that we're told not to be conformed to the world, not to let the world squeeze us into its mold, but actually when we do that, we're actually being deformed with respect to God's purpose in our thoughts and emotions and decisions. We are instead to be transformed, or you could also say reformed, by the renewal of our minds, bringing our minds under the influence of positive shaping forces. And one of those positive shaping forces is the habit of being together with other Jesus followers. The pandemic put a huge dent in this practice, didn't it? Forced into isolation, we became dehabituated with regard to meeting together regularly. When meeting restrictions were lifted, many Christians failed to resume the habit of meeting with other believers. They had become deformed by circumstances outside their control. Now, we see people flocking back to some kinds of less personal gatherings, such as concerts and restaurants and bars, but not returning in the same way to mutually encouraging places like the church. Studies show that there's been a reduction in church attendance over the course of the pandemic of anywhere from 20 to 50%. Another longer-term study shows that the average congregation in the U.S. is half the size it was 20 years ago. People are neglecting to gather together. Here's something Jonathan Lehman said. Some of you know who Jonathan Lehman is from Nine Marks Ministries. He said, absence from the gathering does affect our spiritual state, even if we have a legitimate reason 
or not attending, like being sick or quarantined. Jesus designed Christianity and the progress of our discipleship to center around gatherings. The math is therefore simple. Gathering with the church is spiritually good for you. Not physically gathering with the church spiritually hurts you. Every day, we Americans essentially take our comfort and security for granted. And that's a situation that will render us unprepared for adversity or suffering. Gathering regularly should be an antidote to that tranquilizing drug of comfort and security. It should remind us to stay alert and stay focused on what is real, what is true. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 tells us that we will inevitably be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if we are not involved in daily mutual reminding and encouraging one another. That verse says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you a sinful, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But encourage or exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. By the way, the words every day are not there by accident or by exaggeration. Who are you encouraging every day? Who is encouraging you daily? It doesn't have to be the same person every day, but this is real food for thought. Here's one qualification about meeting together. As a survivor of severe church abuse, I know that those who have been wounded in a church can be triggered even by the idea of coming back to a church setting. Some of these people are friends of mine. There are just too many painful memories. Even if we're convinced that the norm for healing is in, uh, in the church, is going to happen within healthy Christian community, we may need to begin by going outside the church with these people, providing love and support until the person is able to risk coming to church again. Now, the writer here in Hebrews adds emphasis and urgency to his exhortation. He says, do this work of stirring each other up all the more, because the day of Jesus is drawing near, the, the day of his return. It was drawing closer then, it's drawing closer now. We don't know when it will happen, but we are to be living in a state of readiness, preparedness, and reminding each other. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 to get a good dose of Paul's admonition about the return of the Lord and how it ought to motivate us. Now, let's talk about applying all of this. If you aren't intentional when you're with other Christians, like we are today, you will likely just revert to something that's comfortable. This may mean avoiding conversation altogether. Any other fellow introverts out there? That's our tendency sometimes. Or you might just uh, talk about whatever you might be excited about at the moment, or talking about whatever someone else is passionate about. But I wonder how our conversations at our gatherings might change if we intentionally tried to encourage and stir others up to know and follow Jesus. How might our conversations in the church change if we were trying to, let's say, explain the gospel to a non-believer, or uh, comfort a doubting church member, or admonish someone who's bogged down in a sinful habit or pattern. On Sundays, when I come to church, I try to look for three types of people to encourage them, although I often fall short in that intention. I want to speak to a visitor. I want to speak to a church member or an attendee who's not yet a member. 
In each case, I, as I talk to them and listen to them, I think and I pray, how can I encourage this person in the Lord? It's a good habit on your drive time to church or to small group or to Bible study. And think about how you might stir up the others you're going to meet there. How might you stir them up and encourage them? Uh, by the way, just uh, yesterday, I came across a really good article on the Gospel Coalition website called Don't Go to Church Carelessly. It was based on Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 that says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Uh, if you're interested, uh, hit me up later. I can point you to that article. If we don't bring this kind of intention to our small gatherings, or to all of our gatherings, big and small, we'll most likely talk only to our friends and family and neglect many other people who gather with us. And by doing this, we neglect the opportunity to encourage those around us. Imagine how our church might change if everyone put this into practice. I'd guess that we would be getting, begin to get even more out of church. Here's another idea. Put on your calendar a weekly note or a call or text of encouragement to someone who's on your mind. Maybe choose a verse and write a prayer from it for that person. Imagine how you would feel receiving that kind of unexpected encouragement. I got a card from Dean in the mail today. Unexpected encouragement. Thanks. That was an encouragement. If you have received this type of unexpected encouragement, remember how that felt to you. This is not an isolated passage in the Bible. We do have a model for considering others. We already mentioned Hebrews 12, 3, 12, and 13, which tells us to exhort one another daily to avoid the hardening, deceitful effects of sin. In Philippians chapter 2, we see our great model for all of this in Jesus himself. He's the supreme example of considering others. We are explicitly told here to adopt the same mindset toward others that he had. Let's look at it. Value others more than yourselves. None of you should look out just for your own good. Each of you should also look out for the good of others. As you deal with one another, you should think and act as Jesus did. Think and act as Jesus did. In his very nature, he was God. Jesus was equal with God, but Jesus didn't take advantage of that fact. Instead, he made himself nothing. He did this by taking on the nature of a servant. He was made just like human beings. He appeared as a man. He was humble and obeyed God completely. He did this even though it led to his death. Even worse, he died on a cross. So God lifted him up to the highest place. God gave him the name that is above every name. When the name of Jesus is spoken, everybody will kneel down to worship him. Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will kneel down to worship him. Everyone's mouth will say that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father will receive the glory. When Jesus considered us, his loving obedience led him all the way to the cross, laying down his life so that we could be liberated from spiritual death. Receiving his gift of salvation enables us to turn away from our own self-focus and adopt his mindset, considering others, serving their interests. Let's close by looking one more time at the questions that I suggested earlier for how you might listen to a sermon with a little accompanying prayer with each point. So what new thing am I seeing? What new thing am I feeling? 
And what's the next thing God is prompting me to do? I want to give you just a few moments to think about that. Then uh, I would suggest that you write down any thoughts you have as soon as you can so that you'll remember. So let's just take a few moments to think about that. Father, your word is alive and active. We pray now that it will find its mark in our minds and in our emotions. And since we also know that faith without works is dead, may your word elicit from us a willing, joyful response of obedience today. Impress on us something we need to know, something we need to feel, and something we need to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.